0: That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at tribecafilm.com/slowburn. Hope to see you there.
0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 25th, 2018, the 50,000 Texts Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscure. I'm in Washington, D.C. In New Haven is Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And in Manhattan is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. Hello, John. Hi, Good
1: morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. CBS, good morning. CBS this morning, good morning.
0: John just pointed out that he was in his third hour of banter. So <laughs> it, it, could be, it could be amazing. It could be awful. We'll see. <laughs> well, we, well, we'll see uh, people. It's like you too have to,
3: much sugar cereal or something, uh, you know? Right.
0: You have to rate on a scale of 1 to 10, but you can't use 7. I've so subscribed to that, by the way, now. I'm totally into that. On this week's Gabfest, the impossibly complicated FBI Russia collusion scandal investigation, Mueller, Comey, Strzok, fifty thousand texts, McCabe. Never fear, we are here to make sense of it for you. Well,
3: not really. I don't think we should. Yeah, let's to make don't, sense don't
0: set the bar that high. Okay, fear. <laughs> we're not here to make <laughs> yes. sense. of it. Fear a little bit. Yeah,
1: no. We we will be lucky if we get the FBI
0: initials in the right order. Then. then Did the Democrats lose the shutdown or was this a double secret, clever plan to win on another day? Then the extraordinary testimony of survivors in the Larry Nassar trial and the interesting behavior of the judge. We will discuss that and Emily will offer brilliant legal insight about it. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And before we go on, we announced last week. Our first show in Portland, Oregon, March 21st. It's already almost sold out. So run, don't walk, to get your tickets at slate.com slash live. We're going to be at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon at 7.30 p.m. on March 21st. Can't wait to go there. It's one of my favorite cities. I look forward to seeing you there. But you, I won't see you there. We won't see you there unless you go to slate.com live to get tickets. The extremely complicated so-called maybe scandal over the fbi investigation into russian meddling in the 2016 election has metastasized in all kinds of complicated and mostly horrible ways in recent weeks to offer a a vague (laughs) throw at a summary okay um one president trump and his allies have been impugning the reputation of fbi deputy director andrew mccabe they attempted to get FBI director Chris Wray to fire him, which Ray pushed back against. Trump also, it was learned this week, asked McCabe who he voted for, which apparently is a no-no. You don't ask somebody in the FBI who he voted for. But in the period after Trump had fired Jim Comey and McCabe was the acting director, of the FBI. Conservatives are apoplectic. About 50,000 texts that have gone missing between an FBI agent named Peter Strzok, I think, and his Justice Department. Lawyer, mistress.
4: Let's not. I don't like that word. Let's say that he was having an affair with her.
0: I couldn't remember. Wait, what? What's, what's yes. the distinction? But,
4: yeah. well, I well, just I, for, like what's the male equivalent yeah, yeah, for a mistress? Yes, you're right. Okay, like it's yes. gross. You're
0: right. Okay. Well, no, I, I, wait, I had exactly. Wait, wait. I, you know, to my in my defense, in I had exactly <laughs> that feeling, and I just couldn't. I was like trying to just write myself some notes, and that was the only word that came up with. But I, and I couldn't think of the right. It's phrase.
3: better than paramour.
0: Um, what about lover? Okay,
3: that's so, gross.
0: What about Lover, John? <laughs> yes, really, it's a philosophical question. So, uh, Strzok, who was fired for his supposed anti Trump bias by uh, Robert Mueller when he started his investigation um, and was having an affair with this attorney, and who the heck? The, anyway, there's all this this implication that cons- among conservatives that there was a secret society of F- FBI agents in the deep state hell-bent on a coup d'etat against Trump, and Strzok was one representative of that secret society. Also, there's a secret memo that Republican staffers wrote that conservative media says proves that the bias against Trump is worse than Watergate, that Devin Nunes won't release. Wait, also, no,
3: he's, like, wrote it and then set it up to, like, To be called for to like start a hashtag release the memo campaign. Meanwhile, he won't even show it to the Justice Department.
0: And he won't (laughs) show it to the Justice Department or the FBI. Also, Mueller, who has just interviewed Jeff Sessions and uh, Jim Comey, is now seeking to interview Trump. And Trump, this morning, Thursday morning, uh, has said that he would sit down for a sworn interview with Mueller.
3: Indeed, he is looking forward to it.
0: I am sure I am forgetting key facts. But the keyest fact is, my goodness, we're in a dark and complicated place. So, well, John, oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I'm going to jump in. I mean, I think we are in a dark and complicated place. I think we have to extricate what portion of the darkness is brought in by those who want to fuzzy up the picture. If I'm Smoke not and fuzzying mirrors, up the, fuzzying darkness. up the, the metaphor here. I mean, the missing texts is a big problem. Um, and And we should be suspicious when you know, that much disappears um, from this relevant period. And there was obviously something serious enough here um, that Strzok was uh, put off the case by Mueller. So there isn't there. If we build ourselves out from what the original problem was, um, you know, Mueller uh, thought that his that Strzok's behavior was inappropriate and the texts that he'd sent about Trump were inappropriate. And so since this is connected to that, that's that seems real. Having Wait, said that- I am
4: going to jump in here no. to, okay. to take issue with suspicious. I mean, I, yes, like, of course, we should find out what happened to those texts. What we know, what we are being told so far is that they disappeared because of a technical glitch and that lots of texts disappeared. So that's going to yeah, be among eas-
0: in thousands of FBI. Fans. So
4: we're going to yeah, that's verifiable. That out. And we're either going to find out yes or no. And right. Jeff Sessions yeah. who is doing his best to. Reassure the right wing and the president that he takes all this very, very seriously. Believe me, if there is like a head that can roll because of those missing tax, it's going to roll. Um, hmm. I don't think so, we should start out disbelieving the Justice Department's explanation for this.
1: Oh, we shouldn't we disbelieve everybody's explanation for things when no, that many texts go missing not in a
4: moment where our government institutions and, in particular, the intelligence community is just having all this garbage thrown out at it constantly. We should follow the facts, not the oh. worst dispersions.
1: So my, my, I come in from a different perspective, which is, obviously this was serious enough in Strzok's case for Mueller to put him off the case. Oh, so, so there's wait, a, two, two, to two, just just two different there things, too. John. That's
4: I'm an not, appearance of impropriety not. problem. There's no okay. evidence that Strzok and Page did anything wrong in actually investigating. It is clear, of course, if you're an, an FBI agent and a, law, a Justice Department lawyer working on this investigation, investigation. You shouldn't be texting about your political preferences and your like thoughts about the candidates. I mean, but we don't know that they actually that affected their investigation. We know that there's an appearance of impropriety and absolutely Mueller should have um asked him to lead right. the investigation okay. so for that. So
1: what reason. I'm doing is trying to build out and I'm going to make a valiant attempt to finish saying when I was originally going to say, which is build out from what is the most stable part of this thing to be investigated, which is that there was obviously something wrong enough with what was sent in their original text that Mueller removed, uh, struck from the case. So it was uh, appearance of impropriety. That's fine. There isn't there hasn't been any evidence that suggests that he's done anything um, to influence the investigation. Now, on the other hand, we wouldn't really know that because it's all kept behind Whatever Mueller is doing, but but he was removed from the case so long ago that the burden of proof to suggest that he did something to influence the case should be on the people who are accusing that because he's been off the case for quite a while. Now, if you take that as the most legitimate area of this entire story then because texts were what caused him struck an issue in the first place, the fact that they're missing texts means that those missing texts are not unimportant. The fact that that many are missing, as journalists, we're skeptical about things that go missing in big numbers all at once. If there's a technical glitch, cool. Somebody can explain that. The chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Burr, said, hey, this was just a glitch. Don't think this is something nefarious. He's a Republican. So he is pushing back against what and here's where I was talking earlier is that you have those that seems to me to all be worthy of inquiry, and we can figure that and and wrestle that to the ground. We might remember that that Nixon claimed the eighteen minutes that we were missing were just a technical glitch too. So anyway, then you have this extraordinary rhetoric about, like that people have just gone bonkers in their in their overblowing what has so far happened. And the FISA thing, it seems to be the, the this memo, based on what we know so far, You mean the is, application
4: for Carter Page that is the, the at supposedly the heart of this cooked-up secret Devin Nunes memo?
1: Yeah, that part seems completely made up. So that is, uh, I'm trying to distinguish that from you know, this, this other piece that David described. So, so what is
0: shocking to me in this whole conversation, and, and we're now doing a topic Aversion that is largely about, l- largely about it, is that the way in which the ground has shifted to being discussion of, is there FBI or investigatory wrongdoing, rather than the, the kind of overwhelmingly troubling issue, which to me is not, did the Trump campaign collude or obstruct, which I actually don't think is the most important issue. It's, did a foreign government attempt successfully to meddle in our election and what are we going to do to stop it and again we have been totally pushed off on a side path which is not relevant and which republicans because they don't want you know huge parts of their their administration taken down because of it have decided it's more important to to cause fog to chaff it up to cause distraction than it is to get to the fundamental question which is is there a foreign government meddling in our election and what is the impact on it? And that's
4: well and how do we prevent well, it? Because we, time? Prevent it the next we time. know that the Russians well, meddled.
0: Yeah, and then we have the CIA director saying they're meddling
1: presently. Right. Uh, and all by the and the only thing we don't have, which somebody should ask them, is are they meddling with Mueller? You know, David, the, the a lot of the questions you want answered, although not the ones on the Russians, because Mueller's got a different he's got a different beat, but um he's gonna answer a lot of these questions whenever he issues his,
0: his final report. Um, but, but it, John, it's not his jo- – it is partially his job to do that. But it's the fact that the Congress of the United States, yeah. the Senate of the United States, and the, the House of the United States, and the President of the United States, who also has investigator, that none of them is eagerly investigating this question or is enthusiastically investigating this question and instead are distracted by this. Is the FBI, you know, r- riddled by traitors who, who seek to take down the president? That's a that's a disturbing well, distraction, Emily. Right,
4: and their, their means of distraction is destructive of our intelligence yeah. community. I mean, you know, unless you think we shouldn't have an FBI anymore, which certainly was a more popular notion on the left than on the right until five minutes ago, then we need to have government, this gov- very important law enforcement agency be able to do its job. A lot of what this fog and smoke and mirrors is about is denigrating the FBI, which has all kinds of morale implications down the line, and also creating an environment in which whatever Mueller says in the end, not everybody is going to believe it. And it's going to be dismissed, one presumes, by the world of Devin Nunes and the Fox News coverage of him immediately. And that is alarming.
1: That's a that's a crucial and important point. There's this quote, I can't remember in, in what, maybe it's on NPR, from the 24-year uh, former acting assistant director of the FBI who said, we're very concerned about the credibility of the FBI because we're having to defend it on a daily basis and we've never had to do that before. And they've had to defend it on things like Ruby Ridge and other specific things. But this blanket uh, effort to undermine the FBI, to smear... The, the whole place say its reputation in, is in tatters. Which, by the way, it is not in tatters. The no. FBI is, I think, just behind the military is one of the most um, trusted institutions across a series of polls now. And this was true in a Fox poll a year ago, and you now a couple of more this year. But that totally sloppy effort to undermine people who are trying to do their their jobs—that is the—that's where this the rhetorical um, use of
0: this is really uh, is really awful. The I would like to make a larger point, which is a much larger, more philosophical point. Okay. My philosophical point is that when I think about the United States and what it is that makes the United States special in the world, why we have been a remarkable country in the world, I think think of five basic factors. One is the US military is very powerful and can throw power all over the world very effectively. Two, the dollar is the denominational currency that the world economy works on, and that's incredibly important. Three, we are have historically been one of the most open societies to immigration. We're a crossroads of the world; people come here, and so it it creates a, a ferment and activity and and connections um, because we're a hub of the world, both in terms of immigration and just in in terms of travel and in just activity. Four, we project soft power. We are we have moral authority. We can go. Uh, our diplomats and our our the fact that the United States wants something the United States to speak into the world has been a very important fact and for fifth, we have a legal system that it was uncorrupt and very effective, very good at protecting property rights, very good at enforcing justice very thought, known to be very fair and reliable what is to me is incredibly depressing about the trump years so far not i mean of course the tax bills I don't love I don't like what's happening with the environmental rollbacks is that three of those pillars of the United States' power in the world have been eroded and we're see so one is the soft power we're seeing the gutting of the state department and the unwillingness of the United States to project moral authority or the inability of the United States to project moral authority in the world in the way we used to that's number 1 number 2 the attack on immigration on immigrants is reducing our ability to be that crossroads of the world, to be that hub. And now the idea that the Department of Justice and the FBI, that our prosecutors and that our investigatory agency are now under question and are being doubted and that that whole that whole institution is being painted as a as a corrupt deep state institution that the president is seeking to delegitimize it is incredibly alarming to me. And I think that we are – the price that we will pay in decades to come for the delegitimization of of soft power and the delegitimization of uh, fair legal investigatory processes is huge, and I'm really scared about it.
4: I think that's well said, and I would also just add that we are – Denigrating our legal institutions for the sake of Donald Trump. It's this partisan effort to save a presidency that may or may not involve obstruction of justice and other crimes. The idea that before we even find out what these independent investigators have learned, we're going to dismiss it and tear it down like that, we do that at our peril.
0: John, the, one of the reports this week was that the president asked Andrew McCabe. Uh, who he voted for. Is that wrong?
1: It's wrong because implicit in the question is that that matters. And, um, you know, the FBI is supposed to be free and clear of all of that for all the reasons we just described, that they're supposed to do their job follow the law and that politics is supposed to be squeezed out of it as much as possible.
4: So one question I have about McCabe, which I really wonder about is, so like, just imagine the shoes on the other foot or that the, you know, this isn't Trump asking the questions. What would we think about the interim director of the FBI having a wife who ran for office and took a huge political contribution from Terry McAuliffe, who does have very close ties to the Clintons. Like, forget the idea that, you know, that was like why the FBI blocked an investigation to Hillary's email servers. Like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I think there's just this question about whether if you've taken – if if your spouse has um, – Allied herself and taken this big donation from someone who is so close to the Clintons, whether that suggests that you can't have a kind of firewall between politics and law. In other words, that. You know what, from if you're a defender of McCabe, you say, like, well, that was his spouse and he is doing his job and that is separate from politics. And eventually he did recuse himself from the Hillary email investigation, so he took care of the issue that way, you know, again, in a kind of abundance of um, caution to make sure that. There was no taint or appearance of impropriety. But I don't know. I do think there is something about that blending of politics and law enforcement that, like, it's worth discussing. And, And part of the problem with the way Trump raises it is that then we kind of lose any ability to ask a question about it.
1: Well, it asked, so ask the question. What I mean, it raises a question, but what is what's the question it raises? Well, Isn't the I'm, question that I mean, it raises is whether he, I,
4: you know, if, if it wasn't Donald Trump who was the person at the center of this, yeah. like imagine a reverse political situation. Isn't
1: the question that it raises whether the donation to her influences the job that he's doing?
4: Yeah, and like what I mean, I think the recusal that McCabe did to me basically addresses it. But but what do you guys think? Is well, that enough?
0: Well, I think this is where we get into the value of having institutional trust and institutional respect. And it's to say and, and that you want an FBI where the culture of nonpartisan, fair minded investigation is so strong that you don't even that this that you don't even have to worry about it. I well, mean, so that's, a, that's a fantasy, but it's but I think it's a useful thing. I think it's useful to assume public servants are great Public servants who are doing their job devotedly.
1: Also, the context here seems to me matters, which is to say that if you look at the end game here, um, you know the the report that was issued. Ultimately, Hillary Clinton was not benefited in the end by no. the behavior of the FBI. <laughs> um, she thinks all. it cost her. She thinks it thinks it cost her the election. And then on the other hand, the president, you know, the FBI knew about uh, Papadopoulos and what he was saying about Russian information, and they didn't say anything about it. It never leaked. And the FBI might have had other information as well that was even more salacious, and that never leaked. And if you accept for a moment the narrative, which is that the FBI is in the in the rhetoric uh, that has now come out, if the FBI is shot through with corruption, if there is corruption at the highest levels, then why was none of this stuff uh, distributed during the campaign? If the point of the corruption, as this narrative goes, was to hurt Donald Trump and get him out of the out of the election. Why would they have held on to this stuff? Um and wouldn't they they're the FBI. They could leak and provide all kinds of things if in fact they were corrupted at the top and devoted to trying to not get Donald Trump elected. That's what also makes the the overheated rhetoric not just the fact that it's based on evidence that doesn't yet exist, but secondarily based on what actually happened doesn't seem to me to be consistent with this broad sweeping corruption at the at the FBI.
0: One very quick question to you Emily to close it. Do you get the sense that the Mueller investigation is approaching its end?
4: Uh end. I'm not sure about end. I think the negotiations with Ty Cobb, Trump's lawyer over an interview with Trump himself suggests that you know, they're really getting to the principles here. Right. And the interview with Jeff Sessions, same thing. And so I'm not sure that that's the end. But I think it's an important element of him. You could imagine it is like maybe if this is uh, like it's the third lap of the um the mile that that after that comes like going back to some of the other initial people, putting all the pieces together, figuring out who's lying about what. I mean, that's got to be a lot of what they're doing here who, to the extent they can figure out who did what and then who's lying about what.
0: I wasn't sure what sports metaphor you were going to use there.
4: Did that's, I do okay? It
0: was good. It was, a, it was, a sli- it was slightly 1950s. The mile is not... Uh, I was of thinking the first... of the
4: 1600. Well, right, yeah.
0: Well, no, it's the mile. It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, it, it was fine. Day. But was then fine. I thought it was going to be it can be the third inning, the third set, the third quarter, <laughs> the third period of a hockey game?
3: The third quarter would have been okay, too. Yeah.
0: All right.
1: We will, at another GabFest, we'll talk about all the complexities and interesting questions raised by the president's testimony or conversation with Mueller, but I don't think we know enough about it yet in its format to really interrogate those questions. You mean, questions. right, yes. like
4: that it hasn't happened yes. yet, obviously. Yes. All well, yeah, it hasn't happened. Will it be under on
1: oath? That. Why in front of Mueller, not the grand jury, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Slate Plus listeners, Slate Plus members, you lucky dogs get an extra segment every week. And this week, the special segment we're doing is about Stormy Daniels. Why is the Stormy Daniels hush money not causing more outrage? We'll talk about that. Go to slate.com slash Plus to sign up for Slate Plus membership and get a chance to listen to that segment and other bonus podcast segments throughout Slate Podcasts.
4: At LuckyLandSlots.com,
1: available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions supply.
0: The shutdown is very shut down. The Democrats agreed to reopen the government last week. Or maybe it was this week. Time, time <laughs> this week. <laughs> yeah, it was whatever. Early this week, in the week, at some point, <laughs> they agreed to reopen the government when it became clear that the polling was not on their side and they were not going to be able to get the DACA restoration that they were fighting for. They gave into a deal that had basically been on the table pre-shutdown, which got them six years of funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program and a three-week continuing resolution, which takes us till February 8th before we have to do this all again, and a vague agreement from Mitch mcconnell mitch my word is my bond mcconnell to bring immigration reform to debate on the floor of the senate democratic base was pretty upset about this president trump was jubilant john was it as bad for democrats as the progressives certainly think it was
1: well um hmm, i think both of those things it can be Progressives can be angry and think it was bad for them, and it can not necessarily be bad for Democrats. My general view is um, uh, is the one a, a veteran of the previous administration said. I'm not quite sure what Chuck Chuck got for this. Um, for the regular old person watching, I don't think they understand what the Democrats uh, if what they were doing, and if to I didn't the they do understand,
3: I'll be that regular yeah. person.
1: And to the extent they do understand what the Democrats are doing, they're thinking like, okay, the dreamers and DACA is important, but you're shutting down the government for this thing." And so they think their priorities are out of out of whack. But as we know from um, the, the 2013 shutdown, it didn't hurt Republicans in the long term. It hurt them in the short term. Everybody said, "Oh, this is a stupid Republican move." but then they they did fine in the, in the 2014 um, midterms um, or it did or if they did you know it didn't crater them the way people had been. Been saying. I think the most important thing that happened over the weekend was not the shutdown politically for the Democratic Party. I think it's the women's march. I mean, on the on the conservative side, you have an annual march for life that shows the consistent passion from that portion of the conservative constituency, and that Republicans can always always rely on that always activated part of their base. And what the Women's March showed is that there is now that equivalent or a similar group within the Republican, uh, sorry, within the Democratic ranks, which is consistently and constantly energized and is not energized by DACA. It's energized by the man in the White House. And so in terms of what will be providing energy in November, I was skeptical that, I mean, for a certain portion of the Democratic base, absolutely, the question of DACA immigration is energizing, but the bigger energizing factor that will be there in November and that is really not a part of this discussion is all the people who were marching and why they were marching, and that's given energy by the President who will
0: continue to deliver
1: that energy, presumably from now until election day.
0: That's a very uh, good Astute. point. Emily going back to the the quotidian matters at hand though, John's point let's posit that John's point is correct. Uh, to the quotidian matters at hand, is there any chance there's going to be a decent deal on DACA and immigration during this next round, next week, or in two weeks, or whatever the hell it is? I
4: just don't know because I can't. In some ways, as I think we've said before, it seems like the the deal is obvious. Um, you throw more money at border security. Trump gets to call it a wall. The Democrats agree to it and then say it's not really a wall. Plus, they voted for the Secure Offense Act in 2006 anyway. And then you have some kind of pathway to citizenship for the Dreamers that also gives some kind of protected status to their parents. And That's would be politically very popular. And sometimes it seems like Donald Trump sees that and is reaching for that bauble. And other times it seems like John Kelly and Stephen Miller are snatching it away from him and that it's more up to him, up to them than it is to him, or at least like he... I don't know. So because he keeps moving around in this way and the impetus has to come from him, right? Because like the House Republicans are not going to go for this deal unless the president pushes them into it and gives them the political cover that they would need to vote for it. And even I think Mitch McConnell is in the same position. It is Trump's waffling that is um, at the center of this and making it so hard to predict and confusing. And in the meantime. You know, all these people's lives are up in the air. I mean, as a person myself who hates uncertainty, I have so much sympathy for all these people who are unsure whether their jobs and their lives are going to get yanked away from them.
0: I just don't see, of course, that it is an abomination to live with uncertainty and it's terrible to have had certainty and have it turned into uncertainty. That's, that's terrible and tragic for the hundreds of thousands of people affected. I just don't see how this deal gets done, the, that compromise deal gets done now. There's so much momentum in the conservative caucus of of Congress towards f- floating in an end to the diversity lottery, an end to family reunification as part of any immigration deal. And I don't think there's a lot of And And
4: limiting legal migration, reducing legal immigration,
0: reducing, uh, reducing total amount of legal immigration. And I just don't see that there's going to be great enthusiasm for saying, okay, well, we'll just we'll just do a wall. uh, We'll do a wall and 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 then give amnesty to a bunch of DACA people. And that's going to be that's not going to satisfy the conservatives, even though it is clearly what the American people would be happy with. And and it just doesn't Trump will not do anything that he doesn't perceive to be a win he will only do something he perceives is it ma- makes him is a win, and I'm not sure he if and, if conservatives are against what the deal he's doing, the ba- his base is against it. He will not perceive it to be a win.
1: That's right. I think that's exactly where the where the energy of this. I think that's exactly right. Which is with if what what seems to be the case in this negotiation is a further ratification of what has been the one of the truths about the president, which is that he takes the impression of the last person that he is with. And so that's what's been responsible. And we've heard Mitch McConnell say that, or a version of that. We've heard um, Lindsey Graham say that. We've heard you know Dick Durbin say that and Chuck Schumer. And what happens is the president then is reminded by his base, which he cares a lot about, a lot, a lot, a lot about, and they will never be happy with a deal. I'm just reiterating what you're saying, but they will never be happy with any deal that Lindsey Graham and and Dick Durbin are going to like. I think what, what you said, Emily, is interesting, which is the president could give cover for those conservative politicians who might vote for something in the end. But I think we've seen a situation with which even if the president wanted to try to do that, this is an issue where his base would split from him. I mean, when he flirted during um, many months ago, when there was a report that in a meeting with reporters, he flirted with supporting comprehensive immigration reform uh, and Coulter and Laura Ingram and others were uh, very upset. And we're apoplectic. And so, you know, they're not going to say, oh, well, just because President Trump likes it, it's OK. And so therefore, any lawmaker who seeks cover under the, the president's support for something, if he even would support it, and we've all kind of stipulated that he probably wouldn't, um, would have no actual protection. Um,
4: Maybe that's so true, but there's something breathtaking going on here. I mean, it, it was not long ago when This Ann Coulter, Laura Ingram, extreme view of immigration was held by exactly one senator. It was Jeff Sessions. He proposed legislation that restricted legal immigration, and nobody voted for it in committee. It was just him all by himself. And now this is this strain of Republican anti-immigration conservatism is in the ascendance through, you know, Tom Cotton and Senator Perdue and the effect that this group of people have on Trump, but you know, in that moment a couple of weeks ago, that flash where Trump said, "You know, I'll take the heave for it. If it's unpopular, that's okay." That kind of pretend statesman like pose that he struck, if he took the heave for it and a deal that you know probably seventy percent of the American people would support in polls. Like, then the base would be defanged. Like, where are they going to go? And yes, they would yell and scream and he would take some heat from them. But
3: like, that's what it means to be the president of the United States before this. You didn't play to the 30%, you played to the 70%.
1: Sure, but then he would be a completely different person than he is because he's playing and has for his entire presidency only played to the 35% and has shown no interest. You're
4: totally right. I agree Um, 100%. I just want to point out that that has created a kind of breathtakingly dramatic shift in the immigration debate that is not supported by a greater percentage of the public. It's just yeah. a different political reality we're living in.
1: But it is it is still one of the un uh, you know it's uh, I mean the president could have if he were if he were guided under his own steam on this issue on infrastructure on a bunch of others could have cracked the partisan lock. And what he would just have to do is actually take the heat. Um, That's right. The problem is he doesn't want to take the heat where it would actually come from, which is from his own side. But he could have he could have fixed he could have fixed this. He could have fixed infrastructure. I mean, he anyway,
0: it's he chose not to.
4: Right. It's the road not taken. It was also the easy, far easier road to re-election.
0: Don't you think that that this John has something to do with the, the last man in the room? problem with him, which is that the thing that conservatives has been very good about, the things that the base supporters have been very good about, has been making sure that the last person in the room with Trump is, in fact, somebody who is not a compromiser, who isn't a moderate. Had he populated his administration with uh, with Susan Collins' acolytes, he probably would have pursued such a a set of policies. But because... He's got John Kelly and Stephen Miller, and he had other people and Jeff Sessions. Um, there isn't a compromising um, caucus within his White House to get him to do these deals and to give him that support within the White House. And he, and so every time he he may have the instinct to do that, he's being pulled back by the uncompromisers.
1: I think that's pretty much right. And and even if John Kelly were a neutral influence, which is to say that he's doing what a, what a chief of staff is supposed to do, which is put all the information in front of the president. He'll gravitate towards the, uh, the group that brought him.
0: All right. One last question to change the subject slightly for you, Emily, which is, do you think the Democrats should, in fact, just declare unilateral disarmament when it comes to shutting the government down? Because they just don't believe in it. They don't actually want to ever do it. And therefore, they shouldn't use it as a tool because they're not good at it. They will never have the energy for it they don't have the the heart for it
4: long term it actually hurts their interest to have the government Mm -hmm. seem ineffective and dysfunctional yeah yeah i'm I'm not ready to do that to sit to take it off the table like entirely but almost in the sense that This time, at least, it seemed out of proportion, right? And the real answer to DACA and, you know, comprehensive immigration reform is you got to elect more people who want to do it. And that's how you make the change. It's not by being the minority party using your, you know, weapon of total last resort um, in a way that, like, torpedoes the effectiveness of the government. I, I do feel like that's right.
0: Larry Nasser was sentenced this week to 40 to 175 years for his sexually assaulting of more than 150 girls and women under his care, under the guise of caring for them in his role as a trainer and therapist and doctor for Michigan State University, and then for USA Gymnastics. Some of them were as young as eight. He is going to die in prison. That's been made very clear. He is also uh, going to be serving a 60 year sentence for child pornography. This week there has been, and last week, there was an extraordinary spectacle in a courtroom in Michigan with 156 women and girls telling their stories of abuse by Nassar, speaking to Nassar and speaking also to the many institutions and people that looked away or chose not to see what Nassar was doing. It was very raw and powerful and moving. And it was encouraged and, and put in place by a judge who showed visible rage at Nasser, who was a villain in every possible sense that someone can be a villain. So Emily, is this scene that we saw in the Michigan courtroom? Is this good for justice?
4: So this is a really interesting and kind of deep question about the role of victims in the criminal justice process. And it's a debate that's been going on at least since the 1970s, when victims of crime started to really vocally mobilize to play a greater role. And, you know, in some ways, it seems kind of strange, that they would have had something to complain about, right? I mean, we often in a kind of shorthand way talk about victims pressing charges, but victims don't press charges. It's the state that presses charges, right? And so often when victims are asked in, you know, surveys, how do you feel about your experience of being part of the criminal justice system? They say that they found it incredibly difficult, that often they were dismissed. There's been just a real problem with figuring out how to incorporate victims in a way that is respectful of their participation, but then on the other hand doesn't kind of swamp the whole system and become something that's unfairly prejudicial against defendants and their rights. And so – one of the compromises that got struck in the 80s was this form of what's called victim impact statement, where after guilt, when, you know, someone has either pled guilty or been found guilty at trial, and when what's at issue is the punishment, and the kind of question of of retribution, right? Like, what is the state going to say is the blameworthiness of this crime? At that point, victims are almost always allowed to get up and talk about what happened to them and the effect that it had. And when I was in law school and I was learning about all of this, mostly in the context of the death penalty, which I do think is a kind of special case we can talk about. But I was taught about all this in a way that made me deeply skeptical and worried about the prejudicial effect that victim impact testimony can have. But I've really come around on this point, partly influenced by a law professor named Paul Cassell, who's written very movingly and um and cogently about this. Um Cassell was a judge uh, on the federal district court in Utah, and now he's back being a law professor again. And, you know, he has made a strong case for the place of victims in the system that I think was, really borne out by much of what we saw in this testimony. You just had this outpouring, this um, showing of solidarity among the survivors that was really moving and played what uh, imagines a kind of therapeutic role for them, but also helped educate the public about this very difficult and I think um, tricky question of, you know, sexual abuse by a doctor. And then there was maybe some effect on Nasser himself, you know, at least he did produce an apology by the end of all of this. So that part of what happened to me did seem quite worthwhile. And when I was talking to Paul Cassell about it this week, he said that to him, this was like a, a really watershed moment for the, the the role of victims at a sentencing. What did you guys think?
0: Well, John, just well, you, you, I think, talked to a couple of the survivors. Did you get the sense that they felt this was a valuable experience for them and that it, it brought them something that they wouldn't have had otherwise.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the having all of them there, I mean, the sense that this was a, they grew stronger or felt or grew strength from the others being able to get up and speak also. There was a rebuilding that came through this process. You know, Rachel Denholm, who was the, the first one to bring these these charges forward, was laughed at, scoffed, um, ridiculed, basically shoved aside. And so that was the, the, the feeling or that, that happened to lots of people, lots of the, uh, survivors in this case. And it helped with that as well, which is, um, um, but, but I think also the public benefit of this, in some sense, these things come and go a little bit, which is people kind of go, Oh, that's awful. Uh, and then he was sentenced in that goes away and i think the the extended nature of this and the way it's been covered has forced people to kind of ask the second and third order questions you've got the protections that a doctor has and that people sort of think well if the doctor says you know then that's what we do so there's the lack of skepticism with respect to doctors there's also the the us olympic team which has this kind of win the the intensity the win at all costs the the you know, crazy way in which it distorts the lives of these young women and that gets kind of praised every four years, that culture is a part of what's at stake here. It would have been a real problem to kind of call this out. It would have gotten in the way of the main job, which was to, you know, have great uh, athletes. But it was interesting. One of the things that that Rachel said was there are lots of cultures that when they're when when she named the Catholic Church, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, where when they have this in their midst, they kind of circle the wagons because it is a threat to their culture. So in this case, it would be the culture of the Olympics, but also Michigan State. And I thought that was really interesting in terms of taking this to the next level, which is, okay, there was this this monster, and this was allowed to go on, but why? Like, what's the root cause that we're looking for here so we can keep this from happening again?
0: Do you guys think that, in this this is the... Case which has extremely um, strong public value, like it's it's very useful for a variety of reasons. For this case to receive the attention that it is now finally receiving, it's it exposes a you know totally broken culture at a university and in, within a, an entire sport. Exposes a, a kind of practice that relates to all kinds of sports that needs to be examined more closely. And so, in that sense, I think the the victim, the publicity of the victims, the exposure of the victims their their uh, very raw and wonderful statements is incredibly valuable. Can we universalize that to say that, in general, this is a valuable thing that the justice system should have mm-hmm. it, it, to me, like this has taken a week of time of court time, so it 's a week that nobody else in that courtroom was doing anything else related to the justice system um, it is you know, it's, I'm sure hugely expensive. Most people who go who are who commit crimes with victims plead out. So there's no period where they're victims. There isn't sort of a kind of comparable public trial, although I guess there's a sentencing hearing. So there's maybe a sentencing the sentencing hearing. hearing. Yeah, sentencing. And, and usually you yeah. don't
4: have 160 victims, right? You have one or two victims who get to go up
3: and talk.
0: I understand the public benefit and the private benefit in this particular mm. case. I I don't know that. The answer, but is it always yeah. the case that there is a public that that public benefit and private benefit exist and exist at the cost of the time and energy that people are going to have to put into having it?
4: Well, look, I mean, it is. We do have some antecedents for this. Like after the Oklahoma City bombing, at the sentencing of Timothy McVeigh, there were a lot of victim impact statements. Paul Cassell was also brought up the Bernie Madoff um, sentencing hearing when um, I was emailing with him about this. I think, though, in the normal proceeding where you have like one victim or a few very affected family members in the case of a murder, like, yes, there is a place for that. It is true that the needs of victims shouldn't drive the entire process and that there are all kinds of important rights to respect that don't directly have to do with what is good for victims, but to completely sideline them and not include them and give them a voice also just seems like wrong. And one of the things that's made me rethink this is the restorative justice movement, which derives its power from the idea that you put a victim and a perpetrator together and that part of what you're doing is giving providing a place for essentially for truth and reconciliation and apology and regret and and maybe forgiveness or maybe not, but some real moral reckoning with yep. the crime. And, you know, when you talk to victims who've been in those settings and found them satisfying, often they say that it's more valuable to them than the punishment of, you know, of locking someone mm-hmm. up. And so just all of that seems like really powerful and, and important to me.
1: Yeah. I- I agree. I I think one thing that we in the press have to do, which is really important, which is um, I think there needs to be a bridge from giving voice to the survivors and exactly the pain that they endured and all the different kinds, really. It's not just the monstrosity of the perpetrator, but then the monstrosity of the way they were listened to by everybody from their parents to teachers to coaches to schools to other authorities and give an airing of all the facts of the case. But then I think at some point also... To get to that, how to make use of that, I mean, to have the kind of conversation we're having now, um, because I worry that people see this and they just think like, oh, it's this is awful. This is awful. And they kind of they say this is awful. And then they move on.
4: Can we talk for a second about Judge Aquilina, who emerged Mm -hmm. as a figure in all of this, like a figure of wrath? I think really
0: good noun. I couldn't think of the right Uh noun. That's a good noun.
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, there have been questions about whether she, you know, was making this too much about her. Um, And I feel very mixed. I mean, there were elements of the opening up of the courtroom and of how empathetic and respectful and, and really celebratory of the survivors that she was that I found really powerful. And I also think that While, John, you're totally right about giving survivors a voice and thinking about how we present them in the media, there's something about the solemnity and dignity of the courtroom that is different. And I thought that Aquilina's basic kind of open mic move here was like a really interesting use of her power. But then, in my view, you know, at some point, she went too far. I mean, she made this statement in the sentencing where she said, you know, if it weren't for Our bar on cruel and unusual punishment. I might allow, you know, some of the abuse, essentially, that he perpetrated to be, like, perpetrated on him. I would allow some or many people to do to him what he did to others, she said. I mean, that I just like, (laughs) that is, that does not seem like something you want a judge saying at sentencing. And then the other thing that disappointed me was her dismissal of his apology. Now, maybe it was insincere. I don't know. But part of the point of having a proceeding like that is that victims can take some, um, if they if they want to, they can take some satisfaction in a statement of apology and reckoning. And maybe it did have an effect of, on Nasser to sit there and listen to all of that. And so I was surprised that rather than like making that part of the value of the proceeding, she just dismissed it out of hand.
1: On that point about, um, y- you know, her musing about what it would be like if the Constitution didn't uh, uh, prohibit the state from allowing cruel and unusual punishment. I think what's dangerous about that to me is that what the court system does is take all of the rage and order it. And so that people feel like justice was done because it wasn't rage. You know, she had given both, given voice to herself, but then created the conditions for all of these survivors to give voice to their own experience, which was amazing. And that this just kind of that that was the only place I feel like it went overboard.
4: These questions of um, the role of victims at sentencing and the role of judges are really important ones. And David, I'm glad that you Raise the question of whether this case, with all of its like monstrosity, is the right way to think about making rules in general, because I think you know I have sat at sentencing hearings and heard judges say equally wrathful things and been pretty horrified by it because it just seemed like a more <laughs> complex and difficult set of questions than the one that arises in this case, so I think it's important not to lose sight of that
0: all right, let's go to cocktail chatter uh when you're um, I have no new cocktails but when you're finishing off the moonshine which I still haven't finished off at my house Emily what are you going to be chattering to me about
4: so the plot is thickening for partisan gerrymandering court challenges. Um, this week, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down the congressional map for the state of Pennsylvania. And this was a ruling that was the, the court took pains to say was based solely on the Pennsylvania Constitution. The reason that matters is that it almost, well, I can't guarantee this, but it probably suggests this ruling will stand. The United States Supreme Court will not mess around in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's interpretation of Pennsylvania law. There is like a a window to a Supreme Court appeal, but I think it's uh, the argument for it is really not a good one. And so that has an immediate impact that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ordered these congressional maps to be redrawn pronto, which is really interesting. And then there's this larger question of what the Supreme Court is going to do about partisan gerrymandering claims that are based on the United States Constitution. That's like to be decided probably in June. And if you're interested in this issue, which I find endlessly fascinating— There's just such (laughs) great mapping work being done right now. 538 has a new gerrymandering project up, which I didn't even get to look at yet, but looks cool. Nate Cohn has been doing really interesting work on this at The New York Times. You can just, like, look at the different potential maps and think through how we should create districts. What are the factors that really matter? And one question I have looking at these various possible maps is, and I'm not, I don't have a conclusion about this, but traditionally we keep cities together in districts and we keep what we call communities of interest together together. And I wonder why we do that exactly. Like, is it better that my city, the city of New Haven, is all represented by one person, Rosa DeLauro? Or would we get equally good representation if uh, slivers of the city were represented by different people? I just, like, wonder about that basic principle of redistricting.
0: Yep. Good question. I wonder the same thing. John, what is your chatter?
1: My ch- chatter is what I was – Doing the latest episode of Whistle Stop, which is uh, which is back and continuing on the Twenty Fifth Amendment, um, and in the course of that was delighting in our favorite presidential assassination story about James Garfield, which we've talked about in terms of the two months that he was um, being treated by doctors and Thomas Edison, and well, which basically people believe ended up killing him more more than helping him. But I I had never spent much time with Charles um, Guiteau, who is the assassin. And came across this extraordinary moment, which is Guiteau basically first went to the train station to shoot him, and saw that Garfield was there with his wife. His wife was ill, and he Garfield was seeing her off to the to the beach to, to convalesce. And Guiteau saw this and didn't want to worsen her condition by shooting her husband, so he waited. Um, And then came back later, uh, some number of days later, so that he could kill Garfield without upsetting the wife, which I just thought was a sort of strange piece of madness. But then that led me to a book that I can't believe I haven't either read or at least even own, which is called Destiny of the Republic. Because this... It's A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President, which is um, by Candace Millard, which uh, is this apparently amazing book about this entire story, which uh, Garfield was in a fascinating president. This guy Guiteau was very weird. And also he was, uh, anyway, it's just a fantastic tale. So I haven't read the book, but I'm going to recommend it because it's got to be good and it seems to get good reviews and it has all of these amazing and
0: fascinating things. So that's that's it. Why was Garfield always going to the train station? I don't oh, think any president has been to the train station in decades. I guess that was how you, that was like going to the airport. That was
1: how you moved around, I guess.
0: Yeah. Uh, My Chatter is about a great New York Times story by Ronan Bergman. I think it's an excerpt from a book that Ronan Bergman is doing. And it's called How Arafat Eluded Israel's Assassination Machine. And it's a wonderful story that is sourced to uh, former Israeli intelligence and military officials who talk on the record, or at least in some fashion, about the many decade effort to assassinate Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO, and then the leader of the Palestinian Authority. It's an effort that started in the 60s and continued for a very, very long time. It continued up through the 80s. It's just Packed with incredible anecdotes about times when Israel came this close to assassinating Arafat, begins with the story of an attempt in the, in 1980 where they have identified that Arafat has gotten on a plane and they've sent the fighter planes to intercept the plane and they have the fighter planes have orders to shoot and they realize at the very last minute that they, when just when they're about to keep. To shoot it down that it's not arafat it's his brother and his his brother arafat's brother who's in fact on a plane with 30 wounded children and they nearly had nearly had killed him and it's just filled with lots of stories like that and it's wonderful i can't recommend it enough how arafat eluded israel's assassination machine in the new york times that is our show for today the gap is produced by jocelyn frank our researcher izzy road is feeling much better okay Izzy. You should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Don't forget our Portland show, slate.com slash live, to join us in Portland on March 21st.
3: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?